I recently read this sad article about a church split that I want to read for you this morning, kind of uplift you on the Sunday morning. It happened in Greeley, Colorado. It says here, the article reads, a, a little Jewish praise word caused a lot of controversy as a Colorado church divided over the proper spelling of hallelujah, split up and reformed as separate congregations. The problem arose when the board of elders at Full Gospel Temple budgeted money for a praise banner to hang from the sanctuary ceiling bearing the word hallelujah or alleluia. One faction insisted the word be spelled the first way while the other wouldn't budget from the second way. Petitions were drawn up, rallies held, and late-night threats received by both sides. One man, an Alleluia supporter, was nearly clobbered by a rock that came through his window, and the rock bore a note that simply said, Hallelujah. It makes a tremendous difference when you open your eyes and you see the banner there spelled wrong, said a Hallelujah supporter. It's so jarring to see it without the H at the beginning. I mean, nobody spells it that way anymore. I was so sick about it, I couldn't sleep, said Evelyn Haney, 57, an equally ardent Alleluia supporter who carried a sign during a recent day of picketing. To think that some people spell this wonderful word with a J in it. It's not something where I question their salvation, but at times you have to wonder. The two churches now meet in separate school auditoriums, and each has a, a fashion banner to suit its own preference. Worship, says one parishioner, is much better now. Now, hopefully, you figured out at some point in this reading that this is a joke, right? Y'all figure that out? Well, good. Now, here's the sad part about it. The sad part about it is it took some of you a while because, unfortunately, this story is not as ridiculous as it sounds, is it? Many of us have, have heard about church splits happening, or maybe you've even been a part of a church that is split over similar issues that are extremely petty. Disunity is one of the most common problems in any church. In fact, Paul writes about disunity in some form in every one of his epistles. And the reason why disunity is such a common problem in our churches is because selfishness and pride are the most common problems in our lives. And the more we, as, as believers and as a church, become selfish and let pride rule in our lives, you know what? The more disunified we're going to be as a people and as a church. And the more disunified we are as a people and as a church, listen, the more miserable we're going to be as individuals. Because let's be honest, when there is disunity in our relationships, life isn't good, is it? Whether it be in our church or with our children or with our spouse or boss or friends, when there is a lack of unity in our lives, there is a lack of joy in our lives. I recently read a, uh, something that was stuck up on a refrigerator and it said, happy wife equals happy life. Guys, we can relate to that, can't we? Because there is joy to be had in unity. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Philippians, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2 today, looking at verses 1 through 5. 
And what we're going to discover this morning is that the church at Philippi, though healthy, had issues. So far, we've heard really nothing but good things about the church at Philippi. And don't get me wrong, this is a great church, especially when comparing them to others in Scripture, but they were far from perfect. How many of you have ever said or had somebody say to you, we just need to get back to the good old days when the church didn't have the problems that it has today? Well, here's a newsflash for you. The church has always had issues. You know why? Because they've always been filled with sinners saved by grace who still struggle with sin. And the early church was no exception. In the early church, you had issues with bigotry, with heresy, with sexual immorality, and with disunity. So the church has always had issues. And this sounds familiar, right? These problems. And the believers at Philippi were no exception. Although they were spiritually more mature than most, and we've talked about this, that, that we learned that they had a very close relationship with Paul, and, and, and they were faithful throughout the years in his ministry, and they had supported him uh, financially, prayerfully, and physically by even sending one of their own. Even though this was the case, the, the church at Philippi had issues, specifically with disunity. And what we're going to learn this morning and and what we're going to discuss from the Word of God is how we as believers need unity in our lives. Because if not, we're we're not going to have joy. So this morning we're going to look at how to experience joy through unity. And here's the first principle. First way to experience joy through unity is have the proper motives for spiritual unity. Look in, in verse 1 and 2. Paul says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from His love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being like-minded. As we've mentioned in the sermons past, Paul is extremely joyful despite the fact that he's in prison, right? And one of the main reasons he is is because of the state of things at Philippi. They had a wonderful relationship, and he's thankful for that and thankful for their continued faithfulness. But he says here, my joy is not complete. My joy in you is not complete because they were having issues with disunity. And in verse 1, Paul gives several if-then statements, and and he gives these if-then statements to give them a a motivation, a proper motivation for being unified. And I don't want to sound too technical this morning, but it's important for you to realize that these statements are known as first-class conditional statements. And what that means is they can literally be translated because then or assuming then. This is basically what Paul's saying. If this is true of you, and it is, then make my joy complete. Or in other words, he's saying, because this is true of you, be like-minded. Ladies, have any of you ever told your husband, if you love me, fill in the blank. If you love me, you'll rub my shoulders. Or if you love me, you'll do the dishes. And that's a first-class conditional statement. What you're saying there is, if you love me, and I know that you do, you'll do this for me. Or because you love me, You'll do this for me. That's what Paul's getting at here. 
Verse 1 can literally be translated because you have encouragement in Christ, because you have comfort from His love, because you have participation in the Spirit, and because you have affection and, a, and, and sympathy that make my joy complete by being unified. Now, Paul gives four statements here that can be reduced to two points because the first two deal with Christ and the second two deal with the Holy Spirit. And it can be summarized in this way. This is basically what Paul is saying in a nutshell. Because you are united with Christ and because you have fellowship with the Holy Spirit, make my joy complete by being like-minded. Being united with Christ means this. The moment you make Christ the Lord of your life, the moment you trust in Him for salvation, what happens is you move from being spiritually dead to being made spiritually alive. You move from being in union with Adam to being in union with Christ. And you move from being an enemy of God and against Him to being right with God and even a child of God. That's what it means to be united with Christ. Having fellowship with the Spirit, what Paul is talking about here is that, is that uh, this also happens at the moment of salvation. And, and what he's saying here is, the moment you trust in Christ for your salvation, what happens is, you are indwelt with the very Spirit of God. God Himself sets up residence in your life to empower you and to guide you and direct you. West King a, a Christian singer-songwriter wrote about this, and, and he has lyrics that read, Of all the places you could be, you choose to make your home inside of me. So what Paul is saying here is, because of these things, because of all the wonderful things that God has done for you as believers, be like-minded. May that motivate you to be unified. Because you are united with Christ, be united with one another. Because you have fellowship with the Holy Spirit, be in good fellowship with one another. When it comes to motivating people to do right, churches often do one of two things. They motivate by greed or they motivate by guilt. Motivating by greed looks something like this. If you do this, you're going to be blessed. A lot of... Uh, uh, we, we see a lot of prosperity gospel today, and this is kind of their message. This is kind of their motivation. If you give this amount of money or if you do this certain thing for God, He will bless you with health and wealth in the here and now, and that's a guarantee. Then there are other churches who motivate by guilt. They say, if you don't do what God tells you to do, God's going to get you. Anybody heard this kind of line of thinking? I remember Scared, scared to death when I was young hearing that. But I knew I was doing a lot of things God didn't want me to do. But um, let, let's be honest. Both of these you can see in Scripture in some way or another. Like, like, for example, God says, if you obey, tells Israel, if you obey, then what? You get to stay in the land. You get to benefit from, from uh, remaining in the land of promise. And God also says at times, if you disobey... His prophets say, if you disobey, you're going to face God's judgment. So we do have a bit of both of those. But let's be honest. If this is our primary motivation for obedience, it's not going to stick. We've learned this with Ava, our oldest daughter. Because we use both. Sometimes we say, Ava, if you obey us, you get a prize at Walmart. Don't judge me. Sometimes it works. 
I don't want anybody judging me for that. And then at other times we say, Ava, if you do that again, you got to go to your room or, or something like that. So we, we motivate in those ways. And, and you know what happens? She obeys us for a time, sometimes for a very short time. Because of the fact that, that her motivation for obeying is not pure. It's to get something out of it or to avoid punishment and not, she is not obeying out of just a love for us and a desire to want to do right by us because of all the wonderful things we've done for her. Now hopefully she'll get there one of these days. Now I hear some snickering over there. Hey, we're optimistic in our household. But hopefully one day she'll get there, but she's not there yet. And Paul motivates in this way. Not by greed, not by guilt, but by grace. Paul says, look at all the wonderful things that God has done for you and let that motivate you to live for him by living in unity with one another. Paul knew that grace is what brings believers together and keeps them together. Now, I think each and every one of us in here would agree that being unified is a good thing, right? And I think we'd also agree that we need to avoid disunity at all costs. But I think where we may differ is, is what our motivation should be for striving to be unified. When I was in college, there were three different groups of people there normally that, I, that I'd come in contact with. There was the first group who, they were, they were just ambitious, man. They had, their, they had their four years planned out. They knew exactly what they needed on their resume to get a job, and they were just motivated. They knew what classes to take, what they were going to do when they got out. Then there was a second group who were there because mom and dad said, you're going to college. And they were there to make mom and dad happy, and maybe they just kind of got some kind of random degree and they may, may have changed majors several times. And then there was a third group who kind of got out of high school and they were just kind of looking around. A lot of their friends were going to college, so they just went with them and uh, were just kind of hanging out. But, but what you saw is nine times out of ten, that first group was the group that excelled. And, and they stuck with it, even when times got tough in college. But the, but the, the second two groups, unless their motivation uh, changed, they either uh, did not finish or they got some degree they never used or they set new records for most years in college and lowest GPA while still graduating. But my point here is this, the right motivation is key. Let me challenge you today to have a grace-based motivation for being unified. If you have trouble getting along with other believers, let me challenge you today Look at all the wonderful things that God has done for you and let that be your motivation for living for him by living in unity with one another. Second, identify the proper marks of spiritual unity. You want to experience joy through unity? You have to identify the proper marks of spiritual unity. We have to know what unity looks like. What does it look like? When thinking about spiritual unity, most people simply define it as not being at odds with one another. Many say, as long as I'm not starting fights and stirring up trouble and just kind of standing back, I'm being unified within the church. They think of unity as just kind of being some kind of laissez-faire, just kind of hands off. But 
Notice the marks that Paul gives in verse 2. Paul shows that unity is not hands-off, it's not passive, it, it takes work. He says, being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Here, here Paul shows us what true spiritual unity looks like. The first mark, being of the same mind. Now, know here that Paul is not saying each and every one of us have to see eye to eye on everything and be on the same page on everything and think the same way. You can breathe a, a sigh of relief there. Because let's be honest, we're not even unified within ourselves at times, are we? I mean, we can think one way a certain day about something and think the exact opposite a year, a month, a week, or even an hour later. So we're not, at times, even unified within ourselves, much less with one another. But what Paul is getting at here is this. That we as believers need to have the mind or the attitude of Christ, which is one of humility, which is one that, that values the thoughts and opinions of others and, and works to understand. It's an attitude that says, you know what, I may not agree with this person, but I'm going to try my hardest to get on the same page, to see where they're coming from to value their opinion. Let me give you a guarantee. If you do this, even if you have a disagreement with someone, it's going to go over a lot better than just simply blowing them off. Any of y'all ever been just blown off? Nobody listen to you? It's kind of hard to be civil with somebody, isn't it, when that happens? Work to be on the same page with one another. Have the same mind. Second mark of spiritual unity. Paul says having the same love. The word here is agape, love, which, which speaks not of an emotional love, but a love of the will. It's not a preference or attraction, but it's a conscious choice to seek the welfare of another. The Morrises and the other families that came up this morning showed us a perfect example of agape love. Agape love is the kind of love that says, no matter what, I'm going to choose to love this person. It's the kind of love God showed us. Romans 5 8 says, For God demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And guess what? It's the kind of love that he calls us to show toward one another. Jesus said in John 13 34, he says, Love one another. How? As I have loved you. This is the kind of love that promotes unity. It's the kind of love that brings joy. And it's the kind of love that needs to be seen in our lives as people and in our lives as, as a church. Third mark of unity. Being in full accord. This just means that we as believers, we need to have a kindred affection toward one another. You ever meet someone and you're just, you just click with them right away? feels like you've known them forever. You're just like on the same page and, and you can just share anything with them and you just, you just connect. That's what, that's what kindred affection is. And you know what? When we, work to, when, when we work to understand one another, when we value each other's opinions, when we work to be on the same page, and when we show agape love toward one another, you know what's going to result? Is this kindred affection that's supposed to exist between God's people. And the fourth mark of unity is this. Paul says, being intent on one purpose. We're not to be unified just for unity's sake. That doesn't get us anywhere. 
We are to be unified around the truth of the Christian message. We are to be unified around one purpose. And that purpose I talked about in chapter 1, verse 27, where Paul says we are to be putting aside our differences so that we can work together to advance God's gospel. Because you'll remember I said a few weeks ago, there's nothing that, that Satan wants more than for the church to find opposition within itself and, and, and be all mixed up and disunified over these petty secondary differences and never get around to doing what we've been called to do as believers. And that is to put aside our differences and to strive together to push back the darkness in our world by advancing God's gospel. That's what we're called to do. We're to be unified around one purpose. So Paul here shows unity is more than simply not being at odds with one another. Just because you don't have issues with someone doesn't necessarily mean you have a, you have a spirit of unity about you. It may just mean that you don't know the people next to you. Many people think that, that just being inactive will, will, will pass. As, just because they're non-confrontational, that means they're, they're unified. When I was younger, my friends and I, when I was in middle school, junior high, we used to love going play basketball at the park. We played full court, and uh, every now and again, somebody would be accused of what's called snowbirding. Anybody familiar with that term, snowbirding? Basically, what it means is this. When, when you score on one end of the court, somebody stays back and doesn't get back on defense, and the ball goes on that end, and when it changes hands again, they're wide open. They get the ball and make an easy basket. You do that one or two times, it's okay. But more than that, somebody's going to say something to you. Because what you're doing by doing that is you're trying to get by by doing very little effort. Trying to score easy by not putting forth very much effort. And there are some in our churches who think of themselves as being on board when they're really just snowbirding. Just hanging back and not putting forth the effort needed to be unified. Paul is clear. Unity takes work. Are these marks true of you and evident in your relationship with others? Are you working to understand one another, to be on the same page with them? Do you value other believers' opinions even though you may disagree with them? Is agape love one of the marks of your relationships with other believers? Are you committed to and do you love others the way Christ is committed to and loves you? Do you have a kindred affection for one another? Are you unified around the truth of the Christian message and around this purpose that is so clearly seen in Scripture? Are you putting aside your pride, your personal differences, and, and, and just all those things that are petty to work together to advance God's gospel? Examine your life this morning, not simply by, by what you're not doing by what you are doing. Third and finally, to experience joy through unity, we have to take the proper steps toward spiritual unity. Take the proper steps toward being unified. This is what Paul says in verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest 
but also to the interest of others. So in this passage, Paul reveals what's causing disunity, and he also shows the proper steps for the Christians at Philippi to be unified. He says, do nothing from rivalry, which can also be translated selfish ambition. Here Paul is talking about those who do things for their own personal glory and not for the glory of God. The preachers mentioned in in chapter 1 that Paul brings up, uh, they fall into this category. Remember, they had the right message, but what? The wrong motives, you remember? They had the wrong motives. Paul mentioned they were preaching Christ, which is good, but they were doing so out of envy and rivalry. And not a lot has changed today, has it? There are many involved in ministry today, pastors and lay people, who are doing the right things but for the wrong reasons. And the reason why Paul warns about this is because, get this, when selfish ambition mixes with ministry, it's a a toxic, toxic mixture out of which comes comes all sorts of things, out of which comes jealousy and and conflict and, and disunity which is why Paul encourages the the Christians at Philippi, examine your hearts and make sure this is not your motive. Make sure your motives are pure for ministry. There's a a big push in churches today, and you'll hear me make it from time to time, for more lay people to be involved in ministry. And I think that is so important. I truly believe if you've been saved, you have been called to ministry. Maybe not doing what, what, what I'm doing up here, but, but in some form, you have been called to ministry, and that is very important. But what's even more important than that, what's even more important than more people being involved is more people being involved in ministry for the right reasons, to bring glory and honor to God. Listen to what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. One of my heroes of the faith is Rich Mullins. Rich Mullins was a singer-songwriter in the 1980s. He wrote the song, Awesome God. He also wrote, Oh God, You Are My God, and I Will Forever Praise You. He wrote uh, another song called Creed, about the Apostles' Creed. Just, a, just an awesome guy. Well, Rich Mullins was killed in a, in a tragic uh, car accident a, a while back. But uh, he just lived a life sold out for God. I read this biography about him. It's called An Arrow Pointing to Heaven. And that's what the author said. Rich Mullen's life was like. He was just an arrow pointing to heaven. He, he kept very little of the, of the proceeds he made. He, he kept very little of the money he made from those songs. He didn't own a home. He just owned, you know, everything he owned was in the back of a truck. Just He made enough to travel around from gig to gig, but... He was truly motivated, not by making a name for himself, but by making God's name great. That was his motivation. And I pray that that be true of us. That we not be focused on making a name for ourselves, but for making God's name great. Imagine what ministry would be like if we avoided the temptation of making a name for ourselves as believers or as a church, and we just work together as believers and as churches to bring glory and honor to God. Can you imagine what that would be like? Paul also says, do nothing from empty conceit. 
This word can also be translated vain glory. Paul is basically talking about those who think too highly of themselves. Those who think their opinions matter more than anybody else. Don't anybody like this? Don't name any names. You come across this in, in ministry a lot. They have what I like to call the, the Pac-Man Jones mentality. Anybody familiar with Pac-Man Jones, defensive back in the NFL? Former defensive back. He played for the Cowboys for a while. But his famous quote is, I love me some me. That was his quote. I love me some me. And many people, even though they don't come out and say this, they, they kind of show that they think this way be, because of their, their actions. I've had people make suggestions for me, uh, to me before in such a way that for me to say no would be like saying no to God. <laughs> now it's like, what are you thinking? You're out of the will of God thinking the way you're thinking if you're, if you're opposed to me. I've had people think that way. I had one guy who thought the church needed to be going in this direction even though the rest of the church thought we needed to be going in this direction and thought that the church had somehow been deceived by Satan, you know, and the, and the staff included. This is the mentality Paul is warning against here. He basically says, don't think too highly of yourselves to such an extent where you think your ideas are the only ones that matter because this mentality can destroy spiritual unity. Instead, here's what Paul says we need to be doing. He says that unity is possible when believers humbly put others before themselves and when they look not only to their own interest, but also to the interest of others. Where selfish ambition and vainglory destroy unity. You know what humility does? It serves to build and to strengthen it. Let's be honest for just a moment. When it comes to these things, when it comes to having a grace-based motivation for obedience, when it comes to being like-minded with the same love and being one in spirit and in purpose, and when it comes to putting others before ourselves and looking not only to our own interests but to the interest of others, these are not characteristics we see in many relationships in our world, is it? But Paul is clear here that these are characteristics that are to be found in our churches. There's always a temptation for us to be like Paul's opponents in verse 17 of chapter 1 who let selfishness rule and look to their own agendas when it came to ministry. But Paul is clear here, however, that this, this selfish ambition and this vainglory when mixed with ministry is a toxic mixture. It divides and destroys and keeps us from the joy to be had through unity. Instead of being influenced by the world, you know what Paul does? He encourages us to be influenced by Christ. Look at verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus. Christ left us the perfect example of humility. Did he have the proper motivation? You bet he did. John 4.34 says, Jesus says, My food, my food that you live off of, what I live off of is doing the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. John 6.38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And what did God send Christ to do? 
Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Did he get down on our level? Did he, did he, did he see from our perspective? You bet he did. Hebrews 4.15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. What about agape love? Did Christ show that? You bet he did. Romans 5.6, while we were still weak, at the right time, what did Christ do? He died for the ungodly. His entire earthly ministry was spent putting others before himself. Our example. That's our example, Paul says. And you know what? He not only left us a perfect example, you know what he did? He also provided us with the way to be unified. If we're to be on good terms with one another, we have to first be on good terms with God himself. And that's only possible through the person and work of Christ. By becoming sin for us, by being punished in our place, Christ offers us his righteousness in a way to be at peace with God. If you've never trusted in Christ for your salvation, I urge you today, while it's still today, to turn from your sins and trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior. Only when you're at peace with God can you truly be at peace with one another. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray for this church to be unified. Forgive us, Father, for so often, uh, often mirroring the world when it comes to our relationships, when we should be mirroring Christ. If there's anyone here this morning, Lord, who is at odds with you or at odds with, with one another, I pray that you do a great work in their heart and life and, and make them right with you so they will be right with one another. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we're going to remember Christ's humility by, by taking communion. Philippians 2.8, Paul tells us that Christ humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. And as we take the bread and juice this morning, may we just be, be reminded of his humility that was shown, which is a necessary path uh, to unity for us. He did so so that we might be unified with God and in turn be unified with one another. Um, when, when the praise band begins to play this morning the way we do Communion is if you're trusting in Christ for your salvation.